tell you what, it's great to be a Christian. It's great to be here tonight to honor the God of heaven and enjoy these items of worship that we bring before God to show our adoration for him. I uh, appreciate everything that's been done tonight to lead us in worshiping God. I uh, appreciate the great songs that Micah led us in and a really good prayer and the scripture reading. Andrew, appreciate that. You took the bullet for us tonight in reading all of those really difficult names. Thank you. Somebody who's visiting might uh, wonder, what in the world, right? You just stand up and read this uh, obscure section in Genesis. Well, uh, here at Eastside on Sunday nights, for years and years and years, we've been reading through the Bible, and I don't know how many times probably it's been read through here at Eastside over the years, but read a section of the Bible and uh, just let it stand for itself. And uh, that section of Scripture, I'm challenging myself possibly to preach a sermon on that uh, at some point or other. Uh, It would be interesting, Uh, obviously Esau is a really important character in the biblical story, and that's really what that is, it's the background for, uh, you know, his family and the the nation that came from him, Edom, and all that would follow. Uh, You probably recognized, if you're familiar with Bible geography, a lot of place names from those uh, children of Esau and grandchildren, great-grandchildren that places were named after several of them. So anyway, that might be an interesting study sometimes, who knows, but not tonight. Uh, tonight we'll be doing something else. We'll be talking about the kingdom and the church and the relationship between the two. This is more of an informational lesson than a persuasive one, but it's important information, I believe. Uh, Stuff that we need to know. Let's just start with uh, what it is that we're talking about when we talk about a kingdom and what it is that we mean when we use the word church. Okay? Okay. this is another of the uh, artificial intelligence graphics. That, but you have a bunch of people there that's, that's supposed to represent the church because the church is an assembly. And then you have a crown there because that's what a king wears. If you think about the concept of the kingdom of God, you have to start with what a kingdom is. A kingdom is the dominion of a king. You see in the word kingdom, king and dom as in dominion. It is the dominion of a king, where he has power, he has authority, and he rules. The kingdom is the dominion of a king. In the Old Testament, the Lord has dominion over his creation and over all the nations. When we begin to understand what that kingdom was that's referenced in the Old Testament, it will help us to understand what the kingdom of Christ is as uh, something that really comes out of the fact that God reigns over all. God, his son Jesus Christ, reigns in the church in the New Testament. But we'll get to that in a little while. There's been a lot of confusion in recent years about is the kingdom and the church the same thing exactly? Do they overlap? What are we talking about? And what's the difference if there is a difference? And so some of that I will come out in the lesson tonight. But right now, let's look in the Old Testament and notice that sometimes the kingdom of God in the Old Testament simply means that he has dominion over his creation. He rules over the nations. Uh, The word kingdom as it's found in the Old Testament comes uh, often from a word uh, that can be translated according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon as royalty or royal power or reign or the sovereign power of a king. It can also refer to the realm of that king. So in 
Psalm chapter 22, or Psalm 22, I should say, and verse 28, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. So the Lord possessed a kingdom in the Old Testament and as part of that kingdom, he exercised dominion and authority over all nations. In Psalm 103 and verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's over everything. He created everything, and he is over everything. He has dominion over everything. His kingdom is powerful. It is enduring, and it is everlasting, as the Old Testament describes it. So in Psalm 145, for instance, and in verse 11, if you're still with me in the Psalms, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So God dominates. His dominion endures throughout all generations. And it is glorious, and it is majestic. It is powerful, and it is enduring. All of those things we see there in the few verses in Psalm 145. And the rule of the kingdom is a rule of righteousness. In Psalm 45 and verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, the scepter, you remember, is the uh, rod, if you will, that the king holds that's a symbol of his ruling power. The ruling power of God is righteousness. In God's case, might didn't make right. Might is right. He rules in righteousness. He is the definition of what right is, of what justice is. So God rules in righteousness. That's the scepter of his kingdom. And aren't you thankful for that? That we have a maker, a creator, king of the universe, whose kingdom endures from everlasting to generation to generation. And that he is a king who rules in righteousness. That one thing you can be sure of in God's dominion, ultimately, right will win. And right will rule. No matter what it may seem to be in a moment of time, God rules in righteousness. But the Old Testament also foretells of the coming of another kingdom that, as I mentioned, is kind of an outgrowth of this overarching kingdom of God where he's over everything. Uh, And you can see that even in a couple of the texts that we've looked at already. We'll explore this some more in just a minute. But uh, there is another kingdom that is prophesied about in the Old Testament that it would come, it would be ruled over by the Lord's anointed Now, in the Old Testament, we've been studying like the anointing of David and the anointing of Saul. Uh, Those who are anointed in the Old Testament, you could be an anointed king. That would be, you know, you have oil poured on you by somebody important to indicate you're going to be the king. It could be a prophet. Prophets were sometimes anointed. And priests were sometimes anointed. So prophet, priest, and king. But nonetheless, the anointed one would be the king who is going to ascend to the throne. So the anointed one is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Now, When I tell you that the Old Testament talks about the Messiah on many occasions, you're going to say, what? Where does it do that? How many times is the word Messiah found in the Old Testament? Well, not that many. But the word anointed is found lots and lots. 
or anointed one. And may I tell you that the word anointed, the Hebrew word for it is more or less Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed. (laughs) So when you see anointed one with reference to a coming kingdom in the Old Testament, that's a messianic prophecy. So if everybody's with me on that, um, let's look back at Psalm 45 where we were a minute ago. There's going to be a kingdom coming that includes citizens from every nation and bring a redemption and salvation to humanity. And, and Psalm 45, one of the psalms we just read, even indicates that. So if you look at verse 6 that we just read again, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Next verse, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, the word anointed ought to jump out at you there, right? Because we just studied about what that means. That's how you make somebody a Messiah. You anoint them. That's basically the verb form for the word Messiah there. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I expect for many of you who are good Bible students, uh, that line in verse 7, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, recognize that from the New Testament. Because in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9, the Hebrew writer quotes that exact phrase and applies it to, guess who? Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. By the way, you'll never guess what the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one is. Well, you will guess, Christ. (laughs) So, Christ, Messiah, anointed talking about the same thing, the one anointed to be king. My point is, there in Psalm 45, when it's talking about the scepter of righteousness, he's he's God forever and ever, he's the ruling king and he rules in righteousness, and yet there's one to come that's prophesied about here whom God would anoint God (laughs) with the oil of gladness and elevate Christ to the position of king, although he himself is a king. But that's kind of foreshadowed in that text. The other place where it's foreshadowed is Psalm 22. We were there a minute ago too. Look back at Psalm 22 and notice in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. I had read verse 28 of Psalm 22, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Well, that was true in Old Testament times. It's still true today. But what was said in verse 27 right before it is prophetic. Notice, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. That's something that's going to be in the future. Now, in the Old Testament, all the nations did not turn to the Lord. But guess what? In the New Testament age, there are Christians from every nation under heaven. Right? And people have turned to the Lord all over this globe. So you have something that ought to be interesting to us. An understanding of God as king of all, and yet a hint, a glimmer in the Old Testament that something else is coming, something special, a special king who will be over a special kingdom. So let's look more specifically at some prophecies of the kingdom in the Old Testament. God promised an everlasting kingdom with the seed of David, 
someone who would come from the lineage of David, serving as the king of that kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12 is where we'll start with this. God is talking to David, and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And someone says, well, that's probably Solomon. Well, in the short term, maybe. But notice what else he says. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Solomon built a temple, but Jesus built the true temple of God, didn't he? Solomon was of the, line, was of the seed of David, but Jesus was the one who sat over the kingdom to come and built the true temple of God. Now, about 500 years after God promised David this, uh, it hasn't happened yet. That is to say, the fulfillment of what God promised David didn't happen all the way up into the time of Jeremiah. How do I know that? Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. Jeremiah is living 500 or so years after David. He's actually living in Jerusalem when the temple of Solomon is destroyed, right? He's there in Jerusalem when that happens. So Solomon built it, got destroyed by the Babylonians. So the temple of Solomon didn't last forever and ever. That can't be what 2 Samuel 7 is talking about. Look at what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. In Jeremiah's time, they're coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to to David, a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. There's a coming king, a branch of David, who's going to exercise righteousness and judgment on the earth still in the time of Jeremiah. No, Solomon did not fulfill what God promised to David. And the Psalms promise it as well. It's yet to come in Psalm 132 and verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David... He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So we have definite prophecies of a coming king. And we learn that he is of the seed of David. And I just want to remind everybody of this. As you read through the New Testament, on a number of occasions, you'll have the crowd or people crying out to Jesus, and they'll say, Jesus, son of David. And they'll say something like, as the blind man did, have mercy on me. What did it mean? for a Jew in the time of Jesus' day to call him the son of David. Well, they knew these Old Testament prophecies. They were looking for the Messiah. So that was pretty significant for Jesus to be called the son of David, as he was frequently uh, when he walked this earth. Isaiah and Daniel in the Old Testament also prophesy still of the coming kingdom. And there are many other prophecies that allude to this, but let's look at just a couple here for uh, sort of flesh this out. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, a well-known prophecy, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And that sounds like a king to me, doesn't it to you? The government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That sounds like an everlasting kingdom, doesn't it? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah is prophesying 700-ish B.C., about two, 300 years after David, after the promise to David. 
still to come in Isaiah's time. And he is very specific about this child, the son who's given to be the king, to sit on the throne of David, and that that would be an everlasting kingdom. We remember well the uh, dream of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel winds up interpreting in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar dreams of this figure that has a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and a midsection of brass and a lower section of iron. And each section represents different kingdoms. And Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar as he interprets the dream uh, on behalf of God that the head is the Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself. The, the, the chest, the, sil- the uh, silver part, that's the Medes and the Persians that would come after the Babylonians. Then after that you had the kingdom of Greece and after that you had the Romans. And then Daniel is told that it is in the days of these kings that the God of heaven, that is the kings, the Roman kings, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It shall stand forever, and it shall stand forever. We sang the song. I love that song. Forever and ever it will stand. Isaiah prophesied about it. Daniel prophesied about it as he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, as we turn over to the pages of the New Testament then, we see the fulfillment of these prophecies. The angel announces to Mary as we open up Luke chapter 1, we get to verse 31, and he says to her, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Well, that's what was promised we'd be given. And you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, it sounds like this Jesus who is to be born of Mary is, sure enough, the king who is prophesied all those times in the Old Testament. The Messiah who is to come. That's what the angel announces When we come to the end of Jesus' life on earth, Pilate, as Jesus stands in the halls of Pilate, Pilate asks him, are you a king? And he says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. But Jesus says in John 18 and verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. He has a kingdom. He came to fulfill that. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, we learn that he has, God has, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We are in the kingdom. If we are Christians tonight, we are in the kingdom. We have been, we, been transformed or translated, one translation says, out of the power of darkness. The word there for power is dominion or domain. So the dominion of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, we've been conveyed out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. That's where we are tonight if we're Christians. We're in that kingdom. The Apostle Paul spoke to the Christians of his day, those in Thessalonica particularly, urging them to live worthy of God who had called 
them into his kingdom. We are called into the kingdom. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1 that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We have been called into the kingdom. And so I want to be really clear here that uh, the kingdom came, Christ is king now. We'll uh, look at that just a little bit more in a second. If we are Christians, we are now in the kingdom. If you look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, uh, maybe the clearest thing that could be said about this that really kind of explodes a lot of false theories that men have about the kingdom uh, and, and really what it is and when it came into existence. Revelation 1 and verse 9, uh, I, John, he's writing to the seven churches of Asia, Asia. Uh, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. John says he's the brother and companion, brother and companion of the Christians to whom he's writing in three things. Three things. I'm your brother and companion in the tribulation. Now, there are still people who are waiting for the tribulation that's prophesied in Scripture. John says he was in it. The, the tribulation that's prophesied in Scripture, John was in it. Okay? Number one, I'm your brother and companion in the tribulation. Number two, I'm your brother and companion in the kingdom. John was in the kingdom. The people that he was writing to were in the kingdom. And thirdly, in the patience of Jesus Christ. That is the steadfastness, the perseverance, the keeping on, keeping on, no matter how much we suffer, no matter how difficult it gets. In the perseverance and the patience of Christ, John was in that. This kingdom is spiritual. It does not come with observation. He was asked, Jesus was, by the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> but he does answer something about how it will come. And what he explains to the Pharisees is you won't be able to see it. Nobody's going to see it. Because it's invisible. Hear me, the kingdom's invisible. What Jesus says is, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That means you cannot see it. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. What do we say a kingdom was to begin with? It's the dominion of a king. The kingdom of God is when God is ruling in your heart. If he's ruling in your heart, you're part of the kingdom. Somebody else, he's ruling in their heart, they're part of the kingdom too. You can't really see in their heart, God can. There are lots of people in this room I know who are in the kingdom, for God is ruling in your heart. That's what it is to be part of the kingdom. That's the way Jesus explains it. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the dominion of God is within you. And so, just a note about this, and I've said this before. Um, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he tells them to pray to God, your kingdom come. And that can be meant in a couple of different ways. It could be meant that your kingdom be established on the earth with Christ as the king. Uh, or it could mean your kingdom come within us as individuals. And I can still pray that prayer. I can still pray that God's rule would be in me, that it would come in my heart. 
and continue to guide my life. So I think some people have said, well, that's not a valid thing to pray anymore since the kingdom has come. Well, I think still maybe it could be that the kingdom would come in all men's hearts because not all men are in the kingdom and it's not in all men. We mentioned a moment ago, uh, John 18 and verse 36, that about the kingdom, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He has a kingdom. I made that point a minute ago. That tells us that he would have a kingdom. But he says, it's not of this world. No, it's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the citizenship in the kingdom is, is not on this earth either. It's in heaven. For Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I travel abroad, um, it's not too hard in most countries I go to to tell that I ain't from around there. Uh, most people can figure out in just a couple minutes that I'm an American. Sometimes I get mistaken for a Canadian, but usually not. Uh, just a little bit of conversation, they figure out I'm, I'm an American. My citizenship isn't where I'm at as far as, you know, a national earthly citizenship. I carry an American passport that identifies me. The place where I'm from, most of the people I meet in foreign lands have never been and have no hope of coming to. They've only heard about it. To them, it's just a realm of fairy tales. But it's a real place to me. My citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. And people, you know, have part of some sort of religious organization who have a headquarters on, on earth. My king is in heaven. Why would you have a headquarters on earth? Isn't your headquarters where your, your head is quartered? You know, that's where your king lives. The Old Testament also prophesies of the church. And here's where I'm going to get into a little bit that's probably newer material for some of us. Uh, so wake up and pay attention if you're starting to nod off on me. Uh, we understand and have said for a long time that the church is an assembly. In fact, the, the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia, we talk about the word ekklesia a lot, just means assembly in the original language. Now, it came from a couple of words which mean to call out. Uh, but doesn't really have that connotation most of the time in the New Testament. It just refers to an assembly is the basic way it was used in the New Testament. Uh, one place that's pretty easy to see this is uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, where the Hebrew writer is talking about what we've come to in our relationship with God through Christ, as opposed to what they had in the Old Testament. He says, you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and that is plural, firstborn ones, we are the firstborn, the firstborn ones who are registered in heaven, that's, we got our citizenship in heaven, we're registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, those, there's several little phrases in there that really help us in this lesson. The general assembly and church of the firstborn. So a general assembly and the church are the same. 
right? Assembly, church, you get that, that's all the same thing. And we're registered in heaven, so the role of the church isn't kept here, guys. You know, that's, not, that's not where the official role of the church is. It's in heaven. We're registered in heaven. And that, interestingly, we just studied, that's where our citizenship is as well. I wonder if those go together here in a minute. In the Old Testament, um, you have a word that's used to describe, sometimes they're called sacred assemblies or holy convocations. And essentially, uh, that was a word for church or something like it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament then foretells that the throne of David would be praised in the assembly of the saints. I want you to go back to the Psalms with me and look at this prophecy, which may have fallen through the cracks, I think, for some of us. But Psalm 89 foretells in verse 3 that the throne of David will be praised in the assembly of the saints. He says, I have made my covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build your throne to all generations, Selah, and the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. The rule of the king being praised in the assembly of the saints. We're getting close to two things coming together there, aren't we? Where the church and the kingdom are going to meet. One of the things I'd like to point out about that is this will mean something to maybe three people here, but it's really, really interesting to me. As most of you do know, the Old Testament was translated into Greek before Jesus came. So all of the Old Testament was in Greek before Jesus came. It's called the Septuagint. Most of us have heard of that. And... um, When you read the Septuagint in this psalm, this phrase that I just read, your faithfulness would be praised in the assembly of the saints. You'll never guess what the word for assembly is there in Greek in the Septuagint. Ekklesia. The church is prophesied in Psalm 89. Isaiah foretells of the mountain of the Lord's house being established. Let's go over to that prophecy well known. Uh, Isaiah said, again, about 700 years before Christ was born, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth a law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We learn a lot of things about both the church and the kingdom in this particular passage. And most of us recognize this is a place where both church and kingdom come together. The mountain in Bible prophecy is almost always a reference to a kingdom. You can see that uh, in multiple places. Jeremiah 51.25, for instance, flatly uh, refers to the, the, the kingdom of Babylon as a mountain. Uh, 
Habakkuk 3 and verse 6 um, talks about the mountains uh, as kingdoms. And then it's the mountain of the Lord's house that's being established. So you have a mountain which seems to refer to a kingdom, and then you have the Lord's house. And what informs that is that when you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, talking about what Timothy's supposed to be doing in the New Testament age as a Christian, he's writing to him, he says, so you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Now that really helps me in Isaiah. Because the mountain, which would be a kingdom, of the Lord's house, which would be the church, would be established where? In Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem. And the law would go forth from there to whom? To all nations. It's not just to the Israelites anymore. It's not just to the Jews. But to all nations. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. Exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. What are some important conclusions then that we can make for us today? I think there are important facts that we need to understand to help us understand what the church is, what the kingdom is, but mainly how that describes our relationship to God and to one another. I think what we can say is that the church and the kingdom refer to the same realm and relationships but in different ways. So a kingdom is obviously a metaphor that has the king and the citizens and the law and the territory. King is God, we're the citizens. The law is his word. The territory is our hearts. That's what a kingdom is, right? The, the reign of the king. And then the church, well, how is it described? Now, I didn't go deep into this because for sake of anything time, but I know you're familiar. The church is a body. The church is the body of Christ. It's, it's just called that, Ephesians 1. So a body has head, has members. We're all members of the body of Christ. He's the head of that body. Same thing, just described in a different metaphor. You have king and citizens and all that, and here you have a body and head. But you're talking really about the same people in the same relationship, our relationship to God and to one another. The realm is spiritual. In both cases, the kingdom and the church exist in the spiritual realm. Neither one of them can be seen. This ain't the church. You are the church, but I can't just by looking at you tell who's who in the church or who is and who isn't. God adds those. God keeps track of that. So the church worldwide is invisible. The realm is spiritual. Those who inhabit the kingdom and the church are called saints. We mentioned that in the New Testament, the word saint is used over 60 times to refer to simply those who are saved Christians, disciples of Christ. Citizenship in the kingdom is membership in the church. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, well, your citizenship is in heaven. If you're a member of the church, where is your registration for that membership? It's in heaven. Same place. Submission to the king in the kingdom is submission to the head in the church. Now, you say, well, if all of that's true, and I think we can plainly see that it is from Scripture, uh, 
First of all, why did God use two things like this to explain what his church is? Well, a lot of times people don't get it with one thing, uh, you know, for one thing. And there are nuances of how a body works, for instance, and how the members must work together in the body that help us understand our relationship in Christ better. There are nuances of a kingdom where the king is sovereign and his law holding sway over his citizens and them giving themselves to his service that you can't really explain in uh, a body situation. And so there are two very wonderful and perfect explanations of our relationship to God, his relationship to us, and our relationship to one another. I hope you appreciate what God has done. I want to say to you that as ever, um, this is the wisdom of God. This is... This is what the Bible says. This is not, you know, Steve Klein read a book or something like that. The only book I read for this sermon was this one. Okay? This is what the Bible says. Are you part of the kingdom tonight? Are you part of the church? Here's what I can tell you about the church. Everybody who ever got into the church was baptized into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Everybody who's in the body got baptized into it. Everybody who's in the kingdom was added to the kingdom because they believed in Jesus, repented of their sins, named his name, and were baptized for the remission of their sins. When Jesus came, he came preaching the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When his apostles came, they came preaching the kingdom of heaven. God wants you to submit to him. God wants you to give him your heart. And if you'll do that tonight, we'd love to help you. Please come while we stand and while we sing.